0: for joining me again for the author stories podcast where i bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers over the uh the more than 1200 episodes that we've done of this show there are a handful of people that i look forward to getting to chat with every year year and a half you know whatever their release uh publishing schedule is like and fiona davis is absolutely one of those people her new book the magnolia place or excuse me, the Magnolia Palace. I, I, my dyslexia was getting me there. Um, is one of those books that is uh, is just one hundred percent in the pocket of w- this niche that Fiona has carved out for herself. You're going to learn about a place, and then how this place has affected, you know, numerous generations of people. And the, it, it I, I, I struggle to put what your books are into. Um, into terms that that do it justice Fiona um because I love what you've done you 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 bring us these places that that you know sometimes we know a, a lot about or at least we think we do um and then some places we've never heard of but there's always a magical story wrapped up in these places and the magnolia palace is absolutely one of those books so welcome back to the show and thank you for such an amazing book
2: Oh, thank you. And thank you for your kind words. It's so, it's wonderful of you. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. So, uh, if you know, we were chatting just for a second before we started recording about, um, you know, the, the pandemic and how it's, you know, things are going where you are and, and thank God that, that, uh, it's kind of tapering off and, and, you know, fingers crossed, maybe we can get back to some semblance of normalcy pretty soon. Um, but uh, how how's it been going for you? Uh, you know, you release, you've released a couple of books now during this, this pandemic time. I think the last time we chatted was about a, a little over a year ago, year and a half maybe. And I don't think any of us could have predicted, you know, where we would be a year and a half from then. And uh, it's, it's been interesting for everyone, but uh, writers especially. How, how has this, what has this meant for you and your writing life and your publishing life?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. It, it's been an interesting journey. Um, in terms of launching the book, it's a little different this time around from Lions of Fifth Avenue, where everything was virtual for that. And for the launch of the Magnolia Palace, I'm doing a number of in-person talks, um, including one in New York on the Tuesday, the, the 25th, the day it comes out. And then a number of um, traveling in, in a lot of travel in March. Um, and seeing people in person, which I cannot wait. I'm so excited to actually do an event and talk to people about the book when they are present. I think that's gonna be wonderful. But in terms of writing The Magnolia Palace, it was really interesting because I started it in January of 2020 when everything was fine. And I got this wonderful behind the scenes tour of the, the Frick Collection, which is this museum in New York City where the book is based and started doing all my research and interviewing people and diving into what I normally do with a book. And then in March, the city shut down. And all the resources that I would normally have of being able to go back to the building multiple times and you know, really refine what I'm writing about and how I'm describing it, they were just shut off to me. But luckily, The Frick has an amazing website at frick.org where I could go on a floor plan of the building and pick any room and get a 360 degree view. And so I was in the Frick virtually every day um, <laughs> for, you know, uh, minutes and hours at a time, learning more about the building and fine tuning the, the writing and the details of the book. And then in terms of actually writing, you know, I tend to work in my home office because there's a lot of reference material I need to to have at my fingertips. So it's not like I go to coffee shops and write, so that didn't change much. I was home writing. But what I miss most was just the serendipity of, of going around the city on a bus or a subway and seeing someone who looks like a character and thinking, oh, that's how I'll describe him, you know? Mm-hmm. Or going to a play and hearing dialogue and being inspired that way. So that's what I miss. And the city is definitely coming back to life. And um, I'm looking forward to, to diving into that again.
0: Living in a city of eight or nine million people, uh, that's, uh, that's very beneficial for casting characters, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's a good point. Yes. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you know, the, the internet has, uh, has been, uh, the bane of a lot of people's existence because uh, I think social media probably has an inordinate, uh, weight on, on our lives. Sometimes of course there are, There're many, many beneficial parts of it, but you know, the, you, when you talk about echo chambers and, and <laughs> yeah. you know th- that sort of thing, that that can be the downside of it. But having that uh, ability to have 360 degree views of the place you're writing about that you can't go to, that that's you know the the part of technology that should be celebrated. Those are things that you know, 30 years ago, we we might not even be able to to imagine that would have that kind of access that's that's amazing and what a great tool for writers
2: yeah i agree and also for readers who might not live in new york city they can read and and look at a room as they're reading even which is really really wonderful yeah
0: um you said you started the book in 2020 before any of this happened um the book begins uh right after the spanish flu outbreak did did when did that come into the plans, your plans for the book? Because I've, I find it interesting the way that that covid is kind of seeping into our cultural consciousness and and the way that that it it's going to start seeping into our entertainment. And uh, only a handful of writers that I've talked to have chosen to address covid head on in their stories and, uh, you know, have characters wearing masks and and, you know, all of the the social distancing and, you know, kind of what the realities are, but a, a whole lot of people are, are choosing to, you know, just ignore it and, and kind of escape, uh, you know, give people an escape from from reality in their reading. Um, was was this always the plan or did you, did this just kind of seem like an appropriate uh, place to begin the story?
2: It wasn't the plan. I chose to set the the, the time period for the early timeline because of course there's two. It, I decided to set it in 1919 because that was the year that Henry Clay Frick died after living in this mansion that he built for five years, and so I knew it was a really dynamic time period in the family's history that would be interesting to write about. But then, as I started doing research and realized that the, the Spanish flu was on its second wave right around then, um, earlier than the book starts, but. It does affect one character's mother who passes away even before the book begins. And so just being able to refer to it and to include it, I think in the past, if I'd done the research, it wouldn't have really connected that, oh, I should maybe include something about that, even though it was a monumental event at the time. But having lived through it, it definitely stuck out to me as, oh, yep, we must, I'll have, you know, her mother... The character's mother dies of the flu in February and the book opens in the fall. And so there could be this idea of, of mourning for what was lost. And and also I think the way I describe her talking about her mother's death is much more visceral than I would have done without having actually kind of lived through a pandemic and, and seen people um, who I love pass away.
0: And another interesting serendipity that, that, uh, that pops up is, um... In, in the book that there's I, I think a lot of people are going to connect with this uh, with that character just because we we kind of have a reference point. You know, um, three, four years ago, um, if you mentioned, you know, someone dies of, of the Spanish flu during this pandemic, um, we had no frame of reference. And now we do. And that's an interesting tool for writers to kind of, uh, you know, pull on. Uh, this kind of consciousness that we all share at the moment,
2: right? I agree, and and at the same time, you know, the book kind of moves forward from there. It doesn't linger in it, just because I feel like there are sure. far better writers than I who will uh, deal with that subject in a in a really serious matter and serious manner. And um, so, I wanted it to be kind of adjacent to the pandemic, but not not fully involved in it. Right,
0: an innocent client. The first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Things We Never Got Over The new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out, Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fists and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things we never got over. The new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Fiona, we uh, we talk a lot about place as character, and uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you are uh, an author who who really takes that seriously because your books are are usually about a particular place, and then how that place affects people and, and characters that come in and out of this character that is place. Um, and and one question that I always love to ask you is, you know, how do you, how do you land on these places that, that are such fantastic backdrops uh, for your stories and then, you know, be actually become part of the story? What was, what's the story behind the Magnolia palace?
2: Sure. So the Magnolia palace is set at the Frick collection, which was Henry Clay Frick's residence before Um, He left it to the city after his death, and it became the Frick Collection, which is a a museum. And he was a huge collector of art. So it's a beautiful space filled with Renoirs, Turners, um, Rembrandt. There are 34 Vermeers in the world, and three are at the Frick. But it's not like the huge museums that are along Fifth Avenue near it, like the Guggenheim or the Met. The Frick is this relatively small building. It's a mansion, but it's three stories and it's set back from Fifth Avenue. There's a beautiful lawn with the magnolia trees out front. And when you walk inside, it's like stepping back in time because all the same furnishings and rugs and everything is still there along with the beautiful artwork, of course. And so it really feels like the Frick family has gone out to a dinner party and will be back at any moment. And because of that, if you ask any New Yorker they tend to say their favorite museum is the Frick, even though it's much less well known than any of my other landmarks like the Chelsea Hotel or Grand Central or the Public Library. I was I'm so kind of overwhelmed by the response to this book because I thought, well no one's heard of the Frick. How will, you know, will people really be able to connect with it? And they seem to have Um, connected to it so well and there's so many people talking about how they can't wait to visit, um, which is wonderful to give this museum the, the, the attention that it deserves. And so that's really why I picked it because it's a gem of a museum and also it was two different things. It was a house for a family and then it was a museum and so by setting it in 1919 and then 1966 I can really compare and contrast how the building and the people who live and work in it have changed over time.
0: Well, I think people have connected with it um, so deeply because you obviously connected with it so deeply and uh, and it comes across on the page. Um, how, how did you decide on, the, what What was it about this place that, that captivated you and, and made you want to tell a story about it?
2: To be honest, I think it was the Frick family. I haven't Usually written about real people. I tend to avoid that. I tend to find a location and then create fictional people to inhabit it because, you know, I like working in two timelines. I like having an element of mystery. I like having plot twists. And most people's lives just aren't that amenable to a a fictional narrative. But the Frick family were really interesting. You have Henry Clay Frick, who was this tough industrialist. You know, he was. Uh, he was um, an assassin tried to murder him in the 1800s and he survived and had the bullets taken out of his his body with no anesthesia. This was a tough guy. And then you had his wife Adelaide who after the death of one of their children really became very depressed and sickly and you have the daughter Helen Frick who really stepped up to become her father's confidant both socially and in terms of the collecting the art. And Helen in particular was just this interesting woman. She was a woman of contradiction. She was known to be very um, combative with people. Like if, if her friends bobbed their hair, which of course was very popular in the 1920s, she would drop them. She wore a pompadour and a bun most of her entire adult life. She had extremely robust prejudices as a New Yorker article Um, A profile of her in 1939 describes she hated Germans. She just was, she was an interesting woman. Yet at the same time, she created this wonderful art reference library, which is right next door to the Frick, which is one of the best, excuse me, one of the top art reference libraries in the world today. And she was also known to be very warm. She had always had dogs, you know, She, she just was this really interesting creature and I knew I wanted to try and include the family and the, the dynamics in the book. And so that's that's it's really came from the personalities of the Frick.
0: That, that brings up a, uh, a great question that I wanted to ask you, um, being that these historical people, um, a, a lot of times when you start looking into people, people are people. Um, they are flawed. Uh, most everyone I've ever met is a flawed individual in one way or another. Um, some of those are uh, more socially acceptable flaws. Some of them we uh, want to run away from when when we discover them. Um, but when you're when you're dealing with historical people that are dead and their legacy is locked in for for good or ill, um, how when when you start digging into these people and you find that, you know, they, she has terrible prejudices and, um, you know, things that, uh, are uncomfortable for, um, for modern, uh, taste. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find, um, e- easy ways to talk about this and it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, but you know, but you portray them as real people and, and you show the good and the bad. And, um, h- how do you look at handling historical figures and, um you know talking about them because they're real people. They they had um you know loves and 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 ambition and, and all of this as well as you know the their dark sides too. Um how should we handle historical people that that now you know had things that, that we
2: don't like? Yeah I think I think you don't want to gloss over the sticky bits. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's smart to bring these things out and discuss what they were really like. Like uh, Henry Clay Frick was a huge union buster and was just terrible to his workers. He was also involved with this private fishing club that they dammed up a lake in Pennsylvania and they didn't take care of the dam and so it burst and killed an entire town basically. It was a terrible, terrible flood, the the Youngstown Flood it was called. And um, and be, but because they were really wealthy, they kind of banded together and escaped scrutiny or any kind of punishment. And so I think it's really important to bring that up as well as show him as a man who loves his family and, and would do anything for them and loves his art and has a, a great mind in many ways. And I think readers are happy to go along with that and to go along with the ride. In fact, I think so many people have written to me and said that they love Helen Frick. And I'm really surprised because in the in the book she's prickly and really temperamental, yeah. but I love her as well. And so I think it's wonderful for people to kind of get a sense of what it was like to exist back then and have, um, you know, different dimensions to your personality that sometimes don't always fit together.
0: Well, and and I think there's been so much glossing over of historic history and historical figures um, that that people really want to know the truth about them. They want to see them with all of their warts and, 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 and foibles and, 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 and most readers are, are, are willing to kind of make up their mind for themselves. Just, just show me the real picture. And, and I'm, I'm a grown up enough to, to know the good from the bad. And, and maybe, maybe that's the way to approach it.
2: I think so. And I think what helps is I, I do in, in, introduce a, a fictional character into their family who I call Lillian. And although she's based on an actual person, I do different things with her life. So she's really more inspired by an artist model named Audrey Munson. And so I have this kind of wild child artist's muse model in the family who starts working as the private secretary to Henley, Hen- to Helen Frick. And so it's that dynamic of the two of them who are very, very different people kind of connecting and, and fighting and, um, and, and dealing with that, that, that I think brings out both of their characters. So it's a mix of fact and fiction in the book. And I do try very carefully to explain in the author's note what is made up and what is not so that readers understand very clearly what they're what they're getting, and also if they want to learn more, it can go on down the rabbit hole just the way I did.
0: <laughs> I, I I understand your it, because you love to to uh, write in dual timelines, and that's one of the things that that people love most about your books. Um, and I understand finding that first timeline, the the just after the Spanish flu outbreak of 1919, and you know the Gilded Age, and and we're um you know when you began this book, I guess we were right at 100 years from the original timeline. Um, but how do you choose that second timeline? Um, because the second timeline of this book is, is in the 1960s. And we're, uh, you know, 45 ish um, years away from the original story. Um, what what things are you trying to accomplish uh, as a writer when you're establishing what that second timeline is going to be?
2: Sure. Well, I felt like the sixties were long enough away from when it was a residence and the world had changed so much by then. You have these mod, you know, people running around and, and in that, in the 1960s timeline, it's from the point of view of a fashion model who's doing a Vogue shoot at the at the mansion, which goes terribly wrong. And she gets trapped inside during a three day blizzard and is led on this scavenger hunt using the artworks um, as clues. And I felt like the 60s would be a really good contrast to 1919. And also it's far enough away so that the the building would be very different by then. And I could show how it had changed over time. And so that's really what drove me. And also, you know, the, the final reason I did it was that I hadn't worked in that decade before because I've done a number of books now with two timelines. I've worked in a number of different decades in New York which are really fun to explore. And I thought it'd be fun to explore the 60s and I hadn't done it before. So that's really why I landed there.
0: And and with the timeline in the 60s, um, we're still talking historical fiction. That was 60 years ago. Um, (laughs) I
2: know, isn't that crazy? (laughs)
0: Right, so how do you prepare yourself to to inhabit the 1960s?
2: I did a lot of um, reading about that time period. And as I was writing, it was 2020. So again, there was so much turmoil in America And I started looking at what this model might have witnessed. She is, she came from London and she came from Notting Hill, which was an an area that was having a lot of um, racial unrest in the sixties, as well as of course, New York and most of America was. And I thought that would be an interesting prism to look at her character as well as the intern who she meets while they're both trapped in the museum. And that the intern being black could offer a different perspective on the artwork on the walls and what's missing in Eurocentric art history, which is diverse um, artists and diverse perspectives. And so as they do the scavenger hunt, she learns more about the Frick family and the art collection from a from a, a wider angle. And I thought that would be an interesting way to explore it.
0: Um, Fiona, when when you're reading uh, a novel with dual timelines uh there is um the uh, most people will kind of fall in love with with one of the two storylines. there's something that really appeals to them um and and sometimes uh, you'll find yourself when you switch to the other viewpoint the other timeline um you're like okay let me learn what i need to learn here so i can get back to the story that i really love Um, (laughs) One great thing about your books is you find a way to to really engage us in both timelines. Uh, And and we can talk about how you go about doing that and making sure that you're giving enough love to one or the other. But the question I really want to ask is when you're writing, do you as the writer fall in love with one timeline more than the other?
2: Oh, you know, I, I do tend to enjoy the historical timeline, the older one. But I loved doing the modern one in this one because I gave myself a challenge. I decided to see if I could set the modern timeline in only one location with a limited number of characters and a limited time period. So it takes place over three days, all in the Frick uh, Museum and with only really two characters. And that was fun because it really gave me a challenge to see how I could make it interesting and keep the reader reading and also connect it to the older timeline. And so I'm, I'm really glad that, that, that that worked because it, it was a challenge and I, I just was curious to see if I could pull it off. So, so far, um, the, the feedback is that it works. So I'm very glad about that.
0: Have you, have you thought about, uh, doing like a tour, um, of, you know, do like a guided tour of the city and the locations of Fiona Davis books?
2: I have to say there is a Boston book club that come down every year. They, they get a bus and there's about 30 of them and they come down and they tour all the locations and I meet them and, um, you know, chat and, and it's so much fun. So I think, I think that's a great idea and, and more and more people seem to be wanting it and starting to do it. So we'll see where it goes. I, I love it.
0: <laughs> do you, uh, do you find yourself like, you know, at, at, at parties or gatherings and, 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 someone starts talking about a place, do you you find yourself, uh, you know, wanting to jot that down? Oh, I need to do more research about that. Like, uh, what is your process like for scouting new locations?
2: Yeah, I'm definitely always interested in what people mention to me or what they talk about. And there's so many buildings, not only in New York, but all of America. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, when I chose the New York Public Library, that definitely came from readers talking about it and and learning some interesting things about it and an interesting angle to to take that book on and then upcoming um locations include carnegie hall which i did a short story for amazon and plimpton which will be out this summer and that was a really fun one to work on and then as i was wondering where to go next with that after that was was completed for the next full-length novel I got an email from a Rockette um, who said she was in her 80s. And if I ever wanted to know about the secrets of Radio City, I should reach out to her. And I said, yeah, sure. And so the next book is set at Radio City from the point of view of a Rockette in the 1950s. And so each one just kind of comes about its own way. And it's about me connecting with it, doing some research and finding something that really surprises me. And then I, you can't stop me. I'm I'm off and running.
0: Have you heard from uh, any of uh, the people associated with any of these places after the fact when a book comes out? Do, do you get any feedback from people that may see, you know, some renewed interest in a place or, you know, suddenly scrutiny is, is, is turned toward them? Um, have you gotten any of that kind of feedback?
2: Yeah, I know, people, I know people, especially after the dollhouse came out, which is set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, I know people would would kind of make forays into the, the foyer there and look around um, because it's now a condo. And it's been wonderful working, though, with some of these institutions, like the New York Public Library sells the lines of Fifth Avenue in their bookshop, and they were wonderful at setting up a big launch party discussion about the book. And then the Frick have been truly, truly amazing. The Frick is actually closed for renovations, but most of the artwork has been moved nearby to what's called the Frick Madison. And so it's still open and you can see the artwork and you can go and look at the outside of the, the residence. Um, and, and they've just been so much fun to work with and and to, you know, they've been fully engaged in the process and I've been able to work with the archivists and, and the staff. So it, it really becomes a partnership, which is just wonderful
0: and makes it so much easier. Fiona, with the original timeline uh, being, you know, 1920-ish, uh, 100 years, 102 years ago now, um, there's a lot of renewed interest in the Gilded Age, and, uh, you know, Gatsby is really, um, you know, on a lot of people's mind, and, and we've seen several books published recently with uh, kind of retellings of Gatsby or, um, uh, you know, w- other stories about Nick and uh, things like that. What is it about this timeline that that's so
2: romantic to us? Oh, how interesting. Yeah. I have to say I just a plug for uh, beautiful little fools by Jillian Cantor, which yes. comes February 1st and is about um, the great Gatsby from the female point of view, which is just a wonderful book. And, and we'll be doing an event together, which I'm really looking forward to.
0: We talked about that on the show just a couple of days ago.
2: Yes. Oh, wonderful. She's terrific. Yeah, I think it's it's because I think America made such a leap forward in many ways in the 1920s from the point of view of fashion. Suddenly hemlines rose and people were wearing things that they couldn't ever imagined have wearing 20 years earlier. Things were flush with money. There was a lot going on. The the America was very successful and things were looking really rosy. So I think that might be why it's just a really dynamic time for the country and for New York City, definitely, as well.
0: Well, the Magnolia Place is available everywhere. Or the Magnolia Palace, excuse me, I keep saying that. <laughs> nope. The Magnolia Palace is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. You can go grab it at your local bookstore um, please support local bookstores especially now. Uh but you know, if you can't, if you don't have a local bookstore or can't get down there, we're gonna have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it from Amazon and Kindle Edition or Hardcover. Um, I have my hardcover right beside my desk here. Uh absolutely love it. Also the audiobook. Have you heard any of the audiobook yet, Fiona?
2: I have not, and I can't wait. I'm sure it's gonna be fabulous.
0: Me too. I can't wait uh until it hits my uh, my Audible account it's so much fun to, you know, when you, when you've read a book, um, kind of early in the process and then hear the audio after that, I I love to hear, you know, people's reinterpretation of it, or, or I love to hear how someone else brings a character to life. It's going to be so much fun.
2: Yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah.
0: Can, can you tell us anything about what's, what you're working on now? I, you know, if I know you, I know that you are already working on a new location and a story base there what's uh, what's on your desk now
2: yep i am deep in the heart of radio city music hall and working on that book and it's coming along pretty well so far we'll see i'm i'm kind of in the first draft mode so it's a bit messy but uh i know we'll get there
0: (laughs) that that, the messy parts where all the magic happens though
2: exactly that's what that's what i'm telling myself
0: (laughs) excellent well fiona we're gonna send everyone to see you um tell people where they can find you online by the way
2: Sure. You can find me. My website is Fiona dot books.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as Fiona Davis author and on Twitter as Fiona Davis books. And, uh, come on, come on and engage at there. I'm doing a lot on Instagram and Facebook showing the research and, and the people behind the book. So please join me there.
0: Excellent. We'll link up all those places to make it easier for folks to find you. Fiona, um, One of the highlights of my year, getting to catch up with you and talk about the new book. So glad you came back on. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of The Magnolia Palace. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show.
2: Thank you, Hank. And thank you for being there from the very beginning. I truly appreciate it from book number one.
0: Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use, cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial.
1: Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleave's The Jason Crane Series. Seven men ran the farce, the seven witch hunters, the court of Oyer and Terminer. They tortured and lied and mutilated and murdered. They knew those women up in Salem Village were no witches. Their true target was the coven hidden in their own midst here in Salem Town. They meant to hang the innocent until the sisters surrendered. Did they surrender? Said Jason. No, Was that the wrong decision? To let innocent women die and save themselves? What do you think? Should the coven have fought openly? Created more hysteria by swooping in on broomsticks and casting spells over Salem? Should they have killed the judges? There are no right decisions. That is the horror of a witch hunt. Everything you do condemns you. Question the judge, thou art a defiant witch. Question his laws, you question the king, and thou art a treasonous witch. Question his superstitions, you question scripture, and thou art a blasphemous witch. Pity the condemned, you pity witches, and thy Christian mercy proves thy collusion with Satan. Witch hunters are not just bad lawyers practicing bad law. They are men who place the ends before the means. They choose their victims a man, a woman, an entire race, and mark them for extinction. All evidence is damning evidence. All associations are damning associations. All infractions, and who among us is without sin, are unforgivable infractions. Their own failings and abuses of power are shrugged away as mere vigor in pursuit of the public good. A witch hunter will have you by whatever means necessary. If he cannot find evidence, he will create evidence. He will entrap you and question you and distort what you say. He will walk you through the night until your feet bleed, strip you and stripe you, dress you in your own filth until you forget you are human. He will torture your friends until they betray you. And if anyone dares to weep at your hanging, he will drag them to Gallows Hill in the back of the next oxcart. Any man can be a witch hunter. All it takes is hatred and arrogance, and the preening self-regard that proclaims, my deeds are always good because they are my deeds. The seven judges of the Salem court were such men. But one witch stood up to them. She stood up to centuries of unchallenged, murderous dogma and pronounced the magic word, no, They burned her for it.